This is Sean Bull and Nate Weggehout with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The state Supreme Court declined to rule on whether the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics Authority could voluntarily recognize a union of University of Wisconsin Health nurses. The petition was a mandated part of an agreement the nurse union made with UW Health following negotiations last September, but with the Supreme Court refusing to take up the question, those negotiations are now in limbo. For its part, UW Health had previously maintained that it was barred from negotiating with a nurse union by Act 10, an anti-union law passed by the Walker administration in 2011 that forbids public unions, according to the Capital Times. UW Health has said it will continue to pursue legal clarification on whether it can recognize a nurse's union. Public Health Madison and Dane County announced today that they are flushing out their Isthmus Safety Initiative. The initiative focuses on the State Street area and crime prevention, with an emphasis on gun safety and sexual violence prevention. The initiative provides training for State Street employees on what they can do as bystanders to de-escalate situations and provide support, as well as increase lighting in some parts of State Street. Funding for the project comes as part of a federal grant awarded to the City of Madison for crime prevention. Community members have had a mixed response in the aftermath of Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent Carlton Jenkins announcing his retirement last Wednesday. Jenkins' retirement would make him the shortest-serving superintendent of Madison's school system in over 100 years, and would mark the fifth superintendent transition for the school district in the last decade. Michael Johnson, CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Dane County, has personally contacted Jenkins and asked him to stay on, at least to help manage the transition, according to the Capital Times. Jenkins' stint as superintendent has been marked by heavy staff turnover and with disputes with the teachers' union over inadequate pay increases. The city's plan commission is going to take up the question of the definition of family and occupancy restrictions tonight during their planned meeting. Currently, in large swaths of the city, you cannot rent a house to more than two unrelated people as part of an initiative that sets aside housing to be available for families. The plan commission is set to re-examine those decisions, but it is unlikely they will reach a decision tonight, following a request by the mayor and several alders to delay so that they can gather more data on likely outcomes of revising the policy. And now, on to today's top stories. Violent crime, including homicides, home and car break-ins, and robberies trended down when compared to the previous year. Overall, crime is down and arrests are on the rise, according to the Madison Police Chief, Sean Barnes, who delivered an address on public safety last week. WORT reporter Kelsey Krogan has the story. Homicides, gunshots, and home and car break-ins all dropped in 2022 when compared with the year before. That's according to an annual report from Madison Police Chief, Sean Barnes, who delivered an address on public safety last Friday. Homicides dropped from 10 homicides in 2021 to 6 in 2022. That's still higher than in 2019 when there were four homicides in the city. Barnes says any number of homicides is still too high. One loss of life is one too many. And the only acceptable number, the only acceptable number 
of homicides in our community or any other community in America is zero. Meanwhile, the number of reported shots fired dropped by 39 percent. Madison police officers took almost one gun off the street every day of the year, totaling 360 by the end of 2022. That's 100 more guns recovered than in 2021. I believe that the sound of gunfire directly contributes to our fear of crime. And every chief in every city in America will tell you that fear of crime is far more important than any actual number or statistics. And home and car break-ins dropped by 33 percent, says the chief. The number of people arrested also rose. But the arrest data shows a stark racial disparity, at least in the first three quarters of 2022, for which data is available. Black individuals were arrested at about the same rate at 46.5 percent as their white counterparts at 48.8 percent. Even though black individuals measure just 7 percent of Madison's population, while whites measure about 72 percent of the city. Barnes, who joined the MPD as chief two years ago, says that crime committed by youth, particularly car thefts, became apparent to him as a problem early on in his tenure. I myself spent some time through an invitation with the uh, Madison School Board, went to JRC, and I spoke with young people who were in there for stealing cars. I spoke to one young man who admitted to me stealing over 100 cars. It was at that point that I didn't need any other data to prove that we wanted to make stolen cars one of our strategic priorities for our summer strategic plan. Barnes highlighted MPD's use of restorative justice programs administered by the YWCA to divert youth from entanglement in the criminal system and avoid the school-to-prison pipeline. This program gives those issued a municipal ticket the option to enroll in this program instead of the alternative, which would be court. In the fourth quarter of 2022 alone, the Madison Police Department issued 48 youth restorative justice referrals. 33 of those youth opted into this diversionary program. Barnes also highlighted community interruption programs such as MARI, Madison Area Addiction Recovery Initiative, which began in 2020 as a way to deter people struggling with addiction away from the criminal system. Last week's address comes as other policing changes are on Madison's horizon. Madison has finally hired a long-awaited independent monitor, Robert Copley, who started work late last year. The independent monitor, along with the Madison Civilian Oversight Board, were two major changes recommended by a consultant to increase oversight over the MPD. Barnes says he does not have a working relationship with either yet and says for now he's just getting out of the way. If I have a problem and I don't want to go to the police department and I look on the website and I see we have a public safety review committee, we have a civilian oversight board, we have an independent monitor, I could get frustrated and say, well, you know what, I'm not sure, and then I don't talk to anyone. And that doesn't serve us, especially if someone has a concern. So what I am in support of is just some, you know, unity of command and understanding who's responsible for what. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kelsey Krogan. Meanwhile, a long-standing public safety committee could be on the chopping block after a proposal to eliminate the committee surfaced last week. 
WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Several bodies have oversight over policing in Madison. Under state statute, the notoriously opaque Madison Police and Fire Commission is tasked with discipline, hiring, and firing of any officers in the MPD. And by city ordinance, both the Madison Police Chief and the Madison Fire Chief are required to submit reports to and engage with the Public Safety Review Committee, a long-standing city committee. The most recently created are the Police Civilian Oversight Board and the Office of Independent Monitor, intended to work jointly to investigate any possible instances of misconduct or complaints of the Madison Police Department. Both the board and the independent monitor were two major recommendations born out of a years-long process to make structural changes to policing oversight in Madison. So, who do you submit complaints about policing to? Answering questions last Friday after his public safety address, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes said that he'd like to see the complaint process streamlined. He pointed to his experience with the Civilian Office of Police Accountability in Chicago, where he worked directly before being hired as chief. Barnes says he'd like to see a similar process in Madison. One of the things about it is when a complaint comes in, it comes to one place, and there's people who their responsibility is to determine where that should be. It's so easy. It doesn't require any confusion. And if I am to, uh, if you're asking me how I would do that, I would make one central location where if people wanted to give a compliment or a complaint, it would go there. And then that person would be trained to determine who's best to hear this complaint. Because if I feel that I don't want to talk to the police department, then obviously that should trigger someone else. At this particular time, where would that be? Would it be the PSRC? Would it be the Civilian Oversight Board? Would it be the Independent Monitor? Would it be the Mayor's Office? Would it be my office? A proposal before the Madison Common Council hopes to do just that, dissolve the city's Public Safety Review Committee, or PSRC, to improve the city's complaint workflow. The proposal to dissolve the PSRC was introduced by District 1 Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney, and it came with little notice at the tail end of last week's Common Council meeting. While Harrington McKinney declined to speak with WORT, she explained during the city council meeting out of a concern that there were now overlapping responsibilities between the Public Safety Review Committee, which has been around for decades, and the Police Civilian Oversight Board. Matt Giesfeld, the co-chair of the Public Safety Review Committee, says that he first learned of the proposal to dissolve the committee just days before it was introduced, when he created the agenda for their February 8th meeting. That meeting did not happen because not enough members were present. District 2 Alder Patrick Heck says that he too was taken by surprise by the proposal and that he first learned about it just days before last week's meeting. Heck says that he isn't against the idea of combining the two groups, but city leaders would need to figure out how that would work before any action could be taken. There are a a whole series of things that would need to happen in order for the Police Civilian Oversight Board to take over any of the PSRC duties, partially because the ordinance that empowers the Civilian Oversight Board doesn't include those duties. If the council were to dissolve the Public Safety Review Committee, City Attorney Mike Haas says that its responsibilities would have to be divided up by the council. There's a little bit of overlap with the Civilian Oversight Board, so some matters would go to the new Oversight Board, even if the PSRC was in existence. And then the council would need to decide if any other matters that 
would otherwise go to the PSRC would go to another committee, or if they would just be matters that don't get referred to any other committee. For example, the PSRC also checks the fire department, which is not overseen by the Police Civilian Oversight Board. If the city wishes to keep those checks in place, they would need to transfer that responsibility to either the Civilian Oversight Board, the Police and Fire Commission, or another city committee. Haas adds that proposals like grants for the police or fire department would need to be sent to the Finance Committee anyways, and that each proposal would have to be dealt with on an individual basis. Meanwhile, the Office of the Independent Monitor has been quiet in its first months of operation. The city officially hired Robert Copley for the position of Independent Monitor back in December. Since then, the Police Civilian Oversight Board, which works in conjunction with the Independent Monitor, has only met once. While Sean Barnes says that he hasn't spoken with Copley much since he took the position, he says that he's been giving the office space while they get settled. Well, we had uh, one meeting. It was a very nice, cordial greeting. Certainly, he is establishing a new office. Uh, He has to hire staff and create processes. So um, the best way for me to support him is to get out of his way, let him create what he has to create, and then we'll circle back on that. Robert Copley did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. The PSRC, meanwhile, has been considering a handful of proposals, including an amendment to the police department's budget to enter a cost reimbursement agreement with the FBI to help further fund their local joint terrorism task force and to abolish curfews in Madison. The proposal to dissolve the Public Safety Review Committee will go before the council for a final vote on February 28th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. With the spring primary election just over a week away, we continue our coverage of the Alder race in District 20 with Islam Rakangi. A longtime Westside resident, Rakangi spoke with WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout about why he decided to run to represent District 20. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 20 on Madison's west side, containing Elver Park in the Green Tree neighborhood. Aslam Rakangi is one of the four candidates running in that primary, and Aslam joins me now by phone. Thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate, for having me on the show. So just to start things off, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, before I, before I get into who I am, I just want to first say that it is indeed a privilege to serve the city and a matter of pride to be to be on the ballot for someone who is the first-generation immigrant. So just wanted to uh, make sure that I make that loud and clear that it's, it's indeed a privilege. I've lived in Madison for about 25 years, uh, 11 years of that uh, in District uh, 20. I live on the west side with my mom, my wife, and three daughters. My uh, three daughters go to, uh, my high school daughters go to Memorial. And uh, I, I came here for school undergrad in uh, UW-Whitewater, and I did my MBA from UW-Madison. You know, I've spent uh, 25 years here, you know, did uh, came in as, uh, as I would like to say, like, you know, two briefcases of books and clothes. And today I have a life here. I've uh, invested in the city and I've uh, had raised a family here. And uh, that's who I am. And I think uh, it's time to give back to the city. And that's what I'm trying to do. And now why are you running to be the alder of District 20? 
like I said, you know, I've lived here 11 years in the district. I have uh, kids who go to Elver Park quite quite often, and I've seen some, you know, uh, some restriction around parents reluctant in going into some areas, some neighborhoods. And I always thought to myself, like, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, that there is a little bit of uh, almost like a two-city type of a culture, right? So that, you know, inspired me, or I would say like that probe uh, type of thing for me a little bit. And the other thing is, as I said, you know, I've I've made my life here. I feel like I need to give back to this community, which uh, which has given me so much. So, and that's the reason I want to run uh, for an alder. Uh, the other thing is there's a there's a growing population of Asian in in the city of Madison, which I think is a very affluent population. Uh, through my uh, engagement with civic body or, or city, I want to bring those people along and inspire others to do the same, uh, not necessarily to run for office, but at least, you know, be able to active in public service and, and contribute to the city, which gives us so much and, and to the to the place that gives us so much. And, and this is like an affluent community. And I think like if if we come uh, come along and, and, you know, get assimilated with the larger pool of uh, residents, I think that would be beneficial both ways. Now, sticking with you just a touch longer here, Aslam, what do you do in your free time? Uh, Free time. I have a high school kid, so I do a lot of math during my free time. (laughs) Brush up my calculus on on free time. And then, uh, you know, during summers, I actually run a cricket club in in Madison. I've been doing that for almost 20 years that I've been in Madison, uh, you know, uh, on the east side. I organize that. I run the club. I about, you know, Probably 3,000 people, students and people who come for a temporary work here have uh, gone through this club and played alongside with me. So I've done this. I've enjoyed that. I've retired a little bit from that, but I still work with City on developing parks for so that it's inclusive. It's, uh, you know, it's inclusive for other sports and it's inclusive for other nationalities that come and, and introduce us to those sports. And now looking at the city of Madison now, what are the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address as Alder? Yeah, I think, you know, if you talk to, uh, if you take a sample of all the Alders and you ask the question, everybody will say affordable housing and it's no different, you know, buying, renting. Uh, you you think about about housing post covid even during covid and post covid it it has uh, skyrocketed like you know single family homes it's it's just unbelievable to get a housing right so affordable housing is is obviously like the burning issue and a lot of these things you know when we talk about issues they they don't sit in isolation i think we need to understand that that these whether it's affordable housing or you know workforce development your public safety they're all interrelated right but the core, I would say, is, is uh, affordable housing. Uh, that's like one of the basic necessity that we think that it should be equitable, uh, accessible to all, right? So that's, that's I think, is something that I would like to work with. And again, to me, that's a macro uh, issue. Uh, there's, there's a lot more at a district level, a minor, uh, you know, micro level issues that will be important for me. But I think at a macro level, at a city level, I would collaborate with other alders to, or other city council members to, to solve uh, affordable housing and, and make it accessible and equitable. And we'll certainly get into those district-specific problems in a little bit here. But first, I want to take an eye at some specific issues facing the entire city. And you mentioned housing there. So let's start with that. Uh, What sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to obtain more affordable housing? 
So I think, you know, some of that is my research. I mean, I, I don't have like a first-in experience in, in how the city is working towards some of these. But, you know, just to read and think, uh, when I think about it, it's, it's land banking is one of them, right, where we can develop some, some land at, at a contractual basis and making sure that it's, uh, it is creating those affordable housing for people uh, that can, you know, we, we can have people settle there. That, that's one thing, and I don't think the city has not done it before. I think it's just that more of that is needed. Uh, some some of the tax uh, type of thing, TIF, uh, I've heard, I've read about it, and that can be uh, engaged. Some of these, again, like I said, you know, workings of it, how difficult it is, how easy it is to uh, to implement those type of things is important. But the the, the main point is it has to be when we dispense a mechanism like this, where we uh, subsidize something like this, it has to be, we want to make sure that we, we engage or the disengaged community or people who are not, who, who we don't hear from. I think we need to make sure that there's engagement from there, that end. And now another issue facing Madison here is transit. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take into effect next year, and the network redesign is set to start later this year. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think when we think about the the revamping of that, hopefully the part the the big initiative within that should be thinking about environment, should be thinking our about accessibility, because that drives the 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 better the public transportation, the efficient the public transportation, it is going to help uh, our economy, it is going to help uh, our workers getting to uh, to where they need to be. So it's sort of like the engine that fuels your economy also. But at the same time, I think that analogy of uh, fuels the engine, we want to make sure that the fuel is is not polluting the environment as well, right? So getting getting those infrastructure in place with uh, keeping environmental protection initiatives in mind, I think that's a positive step that the city has taken. Now, going off of that a little bit, back in 2018, the entire city saw pretty widespread flooding. And since then, the city has taken some major steps to address stormwater management here in Madison. But some of those stormwater management projects have come under fire from some Madison residents. Uh, For example, the Sonk Creek Greenway Restoration Project, which is over in District 9, which is right next to your district. How do you weigh the need to address flooding and stormwater management against the wishes of your constituents yeah i i think just and i my apologies that i don't have all the details of that but i think if it is if it is an issue of the opinion if it is a public opinion issue i would say the first thing is to engaging the residents and understanding uh, from what the concerns are and uh, the, number two is working across with all the other city councils to understand the risk and opportunity of the project And, you know, just having that transparent communication with the resident is going to be important. I've been talking with Aslam Rakangi, one of the four candidates running in the spring primary election for District 20 Alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Uh, Aslam, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate, for having me. I appreciate it. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nate Wuggiehout, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. Lady Liberty took a trip to Lake Mendota over the weekend for the return of UW-Madison's Winter Carnival. 
WORT reporter Christopher Cartwright bundled up and hit the ice this weekend to find out more about the yearly winter tradition. A man with two beers, one for each back pocket, watch skiers and snowboarders hurtle down an ice slide on Memorial Terrace. Rail Jam, one of the main attractions each year for Winter Carnival, had begun. Ethan McKellips, vice president of Hoofers Ski and Snowboard, explained the decades-long tradition. We're out here doing a little thing called Rail Jam. So we get these skiers and these riders from all around the, the area and get them out to compete. And whoever does the best tricks gets some cool prizes. And we're looking forward. It's going to be a good time. What's the history behind the um, Outdoors Club? Like, how long has that been been a thing? It's been around for a little, about 100 years now. Uh, it's uh, Ski and Snowboard, that was one of the, the first clubs way back in the day. They used to... They used to do big air right on the right on the lake, and yeah, we've uh, they've been doing trips and everything now for ages. Families and students alike flock to take their photo before Lady Liberty, the third iteration of a tradition begun in February 1979. Nearby, attendees rented skates from the hoofers while an ice boat sat on display. Captain Don Sanford, writer of On Forth Lake, A Social History of Lake Mendota, spoke with me about the Mary B. This is the Mary B. It's a, a Class A stern steer ice boat. It was state-of-the-art when she was built in 1948. For listeners who don't know, what is an ice boat exactly and what is it used for? An ice boat is like a sailboat, except it sails on the ice. And it goes faster than a sailboat ever could. You know, we need, we need, for a big boat like this that weighs 2,000 pounds, we need a foot and a half of ice anyway. And, uh, and reasonably clear, doesn't have to be perfectly clear, but reasonably clear. And we need wind. And after that, you just pull in the main sheet and it and go. How are you associated with, with ice boats? The Mary B is owned by the Ice Boat Foundation. We're a nonprofit that was established to be the current steward of this. And so we've done the restoration. It's, she's mostly original, like she was when she was built in 1948. This particular ice boat is special because she was designed and built in Madison. And uh, she was owned by a guy whose name was O.T. Havey. And in the early 40s, Havey got interested in ice boating and thought this would be a really neat thing. He wasn't a sailor, he just thought ice boaters were the coolest people. And he had the money, and he decided he wanted to own an ice boat that would win all the big races. Nobody in Madison had won these big races for quite a while, and he wanted to own an ice boat that would do this. And the neat part about this, it was designed here, it was built here, and with the exception of the sails and a couple of pieces of modern hardware, all the, all the metal here was all fabricated in Madison. It was all cast at a foundry here in Madison, uh, built here. So it, the whole thing is, it's, it's, it's a story of Madison's ingenuity, creativity, passion about the sport. Because in the 40s and 50s, you know, we didn't have the internet. In the wintertime, this is what people did. They ice boated. And, you know, Madison is, for all intents and purposes, the ice boat capital of the universe. As the sun set and temperatures dropped from the 40s into the lower 30s, Lady Liberty's torch alighted while the competition raged on the terrace. (laughs) 
for snowboarding, we got number one, Hagen Blues, Tyrone Jason Parker. And then we got fireworks at seven, so make sure you're here. Not five minutes after those words were spoken, fireworks illuminated Lake Mendota in red, blue, yellow, and green. Music blasted and the crowd cheered, topping out another successful carnival. McKellop summed up the spirit of the weekend. My favorite part of Winter Carnival is about, you know, how we can take a, a, a time of year that should be cold and miserable, but everybody's out here happy and having fun. This is Christopher Cartwright reporting for WORT News. While folks were bundled up for the Winter Carnival, WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis knows that partying on the ice isn't everyone's favorite way to spend a winter day. Last week, Davis took to the streets to ask Madison residents about their favorite outdoor winter activities. My first name's Darlis. I'm probably just getting out and walking. If there's, if it's not slippery, it's just nice out. If the sun's shining, you know, but the sun hasn't been shining lately, so. Uh, Greg, law launcher. Um, probably uh, just getting out, walking around the city, and uh, seeing what's going on. Shoe, uh, walking because I have mobility issues and I can stay stable when I'm walking. I like walking along the lakefront. Um, just all over campus, up Bascom Hill. My name is Jonas DeClona. My favorite winter activity would be staying inside because I'm from Florida, so I don't really like the cold like that. Uh, Quincy. I think I'll have to piggyback off what you said. I'm from Florida as well, so I don't really like the cold like that. Gracie, skiing. Because it's like fun to be active outside and to really like immerse yourself into the weather, but you're not like cold because your body's like warm from moving. Hi, my name's Kaylee. Um, probably either snowmobiling or skiing um, because I like doing it with my family. Uh, Andrea. Um, honestly, I don't really like winter much, but uh, I'd say probably like snowball fights and whatnot. Because me and my brothers would usually go out. We, we were born in Chicago, so it snowed a lot back then. So we would go out and just play. Celeste. Jumping in the snow. Because it's fun. Like pushing each other, kind of like fighting type sure. of thing. Yeah. Tatum. Probably skiing or ice skating because I just like how fast uh, skiing is and then ice skating. It's just fun. Yeah, the name is uh, Christopher Dade. Probably my favorite winter activity is skiing. Uh, well, I love being outside, so skiing is a great way to get outside during the winter if there's snow. So, yeah, it's kind of sad that we've not had a lot of snow this winter and it seems to be going away quite quickly today. But yeah, I love skiing. I'm Caleb. Ooh, reading next to like a cold window underneath a blanket and something hot to drink. My name is Gabby. My favorite winter activity is going on walks on Lake Mendota. My name is Martha. I love to go ice skating at Maggie Daly Park in Chicago. I'm Alex, building a snowman with my daughter. My name is Sadie. Honestly, I like just like going for a nice walk around town. Downtown here is so nice in the winter, so I like to go for a walk. So lame, but I love it. For WORT News, I'm Caitlin Davis. This Wednesday marks the anniversary of the escape of Shadrach Minkins, a formerly enslaved man from, Bos from a Boston courthouse in 1851. He was the first person in New England detained under the Fugitive Slave Act. 
which required the federal government and local law enforcement to aid so-called slave catchers. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Wednesday, February 15th, is the anniversary of the escape of a formerly enslaved person, Shadrach Minkins, from Boston to Canada. He was the first person seized in New England under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. He was already in a Boston courtroom when he escaped, and with the help of the Underground Railroad, made it to Canada six days later. The Fugitive Slave Act passed as part of the so-called Compromise of 1850. The bill gave the full support of the federal government to slave catchers. Local law enforcement also had to cooperate, and individual citizens who aided fugitives were subject to fines and possible imprisonment. Before the Fugitive Slave Act, Local hostility had made slave catchers work finding and retrieving slaves in many free states nearly impossible, but the situation changed dramatically under the new law. The effectiveness of the new law varied, but it led to increased suffering and insecurity for African Americans. After the law passed, many formerly enslaved people fled the U.S. for Canada. Others like Shadrick Minkins chose to stay and take their chances. Shadrick Minkins had been born into slavery, beating the odds he successfully escaped from Norfolk, Virginia. In May of 1850, found a job as a waiter at Taft's Cornhill Coffee House in Boston. He found there a vibrant, free black community with a large number of abolitionists, black and white. Boston was a sanctuary city where escaped enslaved people could blend in among the city's 2,000 African-American citizens and could obtain jobs or continue north to Canada. Nine months after Minkins arrived in Boston, John Caphart, a constable and professional slave hunter, arrived in Boston, bearing legal papers from Minkins and Slaver on February 12th of 1851. Caphart quietly secured a warrant, planning to capture Minkins in an early morning raid before anyone could interfere. At dawn, the deputy U.S. Marshal Patrick Riley and his men gathered outside the coffee house, intending to capture Minkins on his way into work. The marshal's plan almost failed, but eventually they did capture Minkins and marched him out the back passageway and directly across the street into the federal courthouse. By this time, it was nearly noon, and many people had witnessed his capture. Word spread quickly, and soon 200 people, mostly black and angry, had gathered in the courtroom and hallways and on the courthouse steps. Abolitionist lawyers, including Robert Morris, reportedly only the second black man in U.S. history to be accepted into the bar, rushed to his defense. The lawyers stalled for time, and the crowd grew larger and angrier. In the afternoon, a judge ordered a hearing for the following Tuesday. Marshal Riley and his officers began clearing the courtroom. As the spectators in the courtroom joined the group in the hall, an already tense situation exploded. An African-American man in the hallway rushed forward, crying, Boys, are you ready? It's now or never. The furious mob rushed the courtroom door, overpowering the marshals. About 30 black men grabbed Minkins by the collar and feet and ran out the door, down the hallway and stairs, and into the crowded street. By this time, the crowd was so big and hostile that the marshals didn't dare to pursue them. The atmosphere outside was chaotic and jubilant. Finally, the African-American abolitionist, Louis Hayden, separated Minkins from the crowd and took him to a hiding place on Beacon Hill. A few hours later, Hayden smuggled Minkins, dressed as a woman, out of Boston to Cambridge, and that night took him 
to an underground railroad station in Concord, Massachusetts. Concord abolitionists provided Minkins with food, clothing, and rest, then saw him safely on his way to Fitchburg, and from there on to Canada. In Boston, there was both celebration and recrimination. Free African Americans and white abolitionists enjoyed their victory over the fugitive slave law, but the federal government made a series of arrests and brought to trial those who had assisted Minkins escape. Nine abolitionists were indicted, and some of them, including Lewis Hayden, were put on trial. All were acquitted by sympathetic juries. Shadrach Minkins settled among other fugitive slaves in Montreal, married, raised a family, ran a series of restaurants, and eventually became a barber. As many as two-thirds of American-born blacks in Canada returned to the U.S. after the Civil War. Minkins was not among them. He lived out his life among black expatriates in Montreal, dying a free man on December 13, 1875. And that is our story for today. For the past is and past, I'm Harry Richardson. Cedric Burroughs is a professor of English at Marquette University, where he teaches African-American rhetoric and culture, social movements, and protest literature. His most recent research includes the cultural narratives of civil rights monuments and the literature and media influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement. This Wednesday, Cedric Burroughs will give a free Lunch and Learn lecture at the Wisconsin State Capitol as part of the Black Legislative Caucus's commemoration of Black History Month. Burroughs spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing about the free lecture earlier today. This is just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find online at wortfm.org. So your lecture on Wednesday focuses on putting Martin Luther King Jr. in a historical context. How do you think people have been taking MLK out of context? Well, typically, especially during a holiday, is that usually we take quotes from his speeches, but we use it for a particular interest or use, but we never put it within a larger context as well. So if you take, for example, I have a dream where most people, because of how we've been extrapolated over the years, that they think that he started with him saying, I have a dream, but he forgot about all the other things he said in the speech as well. Like in the early part, was saying, we come to cash a check about insufficient funds or that he even speaks about police brutality as well in his speech. And so that we use his words to talk about a harmonious society, but we also don't take into account all the other things that he said over the years, especially during his last years of his life, where he really condemns a lot of structures and institutions in American society and arguing that they need to be changed as well. And King got criticism from people at the time for bringing up issues like labor issues and the Vietnam War, for example, didn't he? Oh, yeah, that people said that all he needs to do is just stick to civil rights, which is really is a very condescending thing, the suggestion that if you're black, that's the only thing you talk about is race or civil rights. But what King looked at in a larger picture is how all those things are interconnected with each other. So you can say that he was very intersectional, even before the word even was termed, but saying about how issues of race connected to class, connected to the war, and how it's all in, it's all related to each other. So he couldn't just talk about one thing, he had to talk about 
all of them. You know, it's, it's interesting to me when we look back at some of these figures, I think you could say this about Malcolm X as well and some others, That is that in retrospect, we tend to focus on the early parts of their career and we often don't see how they their thinking evolved uh, over that span. It, is that part of your perspective as well? I think so, that we, we freeze them in one, one era of their lives, and I realize that they are people, and people change ideas. They have different ideas. They're exposed to different things, and so they evolve and they change and things like that. And so, like with Malcolm X, we talk about Nation of Islam years, but he was well-versed at international in an international arena where toward the end of his life that he was going to go to the United Nations and bring up charges against the United States. So he had a very global perspective. And even in the end, one of his speeches said it's not a American problem, it's a worldwide problem. So he looked from the global perspective, even King as well. So in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? He talks about the world house, about how before we even step outside our door in the morning that we've basically use a lot of products from other countries. So we have interacted with a lot of things as well. So both of those people, we tend to frame them within civil rights, but not realizing the international scope that they had as well. And how does this perspective on, on King or Malcolm X, how does this fit in with your current research? So we're mostly looking at how we tell our stories, especially black history narratives, that how we we usually focus on one particular story, but we never look at other aspects. So looking broader with black history, for example, that we now talk about the struggle. So we talk about a lot of things related to the violence of that blacks experience in America, racism and things like that. And those things are valid. But at the same time, we also forget how did black people just live? How did they build their own neighborhoods, their own businesses? They had black resort areas, black towns. And we don't really see that part as much. And so what happens is that we get a one-sided view of blackness as always something that's always about struggle or hardship, but we never really embrace the beauty of black culture in the process either. And as with any movement, the looking at, at some of this history and re-examining it has sparked a backlash. Places like Florida, for example, are, are banning a discussion of what they're calling critical race theory, which in many cases is just history. How do you how do you see that playing out? Do you see do you see that backlash uh, affecting your work or your career? Well, maybe get more motivation to actually do the research because I always use history as a template. History always says anytime there's a big progressive movement in society, especially in the U.S., there's always going to be a big backlash before it really settled, but really people begin to accept it. So there's always going to be a big backlash, but then people, you can't really change time or you can't really stop progress from happening. So it's usually what happens is that the backlash is really the last gasp of people trying to hold on or trying to preserve some type of ideology. But eventually, I think the truth will wheel out and eventually people will have to face that history and that knowledge. And what else do you plan to discuss at the state capitol on Wednesday? So if King is just talking about his evolution in the pub, in the media, in the public, so starting like when he first entered into public spaces and also at the end, you have some recommendations about how we should see King now, about how to place him within his proper historical and cultural context. All right, Cedric Burroughs will give a free lecture in the North Hearing Room of the Wisconsin State Capitol on Wednesday, February 15th, starting at noon. Cedric Burroughs, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you for having me. With another week of heavy world news, feature contributor Harry Richardson took to serious escapism this week in this week's Monday Movie Review with two fun kids' movies, Lyle Lyle Crocodile 
and Minions, The Rise of Gru. He's not dangerous. He's a crocodile. He's just lonely like me. Hey, you awake yet? He can't talk, but he can sing. At the top of the world tonight. That was clip from the trailer for Lyle Crocodile, a fun animated movie co-directed by Will Speck and Josh Gordon. It's based on the children's book of the same name by Bernard Weber. There's a whole series of kid books about Lyle. The scriptwriter is Will Davies. The movie is entertaining with some fun adventure, complete with chase scenes and a warm-hearted family story about a singing crocodile. Curiously, Lyle can't talk. He expresses his feelings through songs. The songs were finally rendered by Canadian pop star Shawn Mendes. The song and dance routines are some of the movie's best scenes. They are written by La La Land and the greatest showmen's Benj, Posick, and Justin Paul. Our story begins with a sketchy magician, Hector Valenti Javier Bardem sneaking into one last show. He is unceremoniously shown the door. Undaunted, Hector tries to put something new into his stale act and happens on an exotic pet shop across the street from the theater. In real life, that name seems like a good way to get shut down by the city. In any case, in this fantasy of New York, the sun is always shining and the streets are clean, as is Times Square. Hector finds a tiny singing crocodile, Lyle, and takes him home. He spends months practicing with Lyle, catchy, familiar-sounding pop songs like Top of the World and Look at Us Now, optimistic songs about personal growth, as Lyle grows physically before our eyes. Finally, we get to the big tryout for the act. Hector and Lyle make an energetic pair, but Lyle gets stage fright, and a disappointed Hector takes off to find another hustle, leaving a miserable Lyle up in his attic. Fast forward several months, and a new family, the Prims, move into Hector's old place, much to dismay of downstairs neighbor Grouch, amusingly played by Brett Gilman as Mr. Grumps. The Prims are Scott McNary, a teacher, his spouse, Mrs. Prim, a former cook book author, Constance Wu, and their son, Josh, Winslow Figley. Apparently, his parents have no first names. The Prims are charmed by Lyle, and he helps inspire them to make the most of their new life in New York. Then Hector returns, and so does our story's main conflict that leads to more chase scenes and adventure on the not-so-mean streets of New York. All in all, a fun kids' movie with a heart that the whole family can enjoy with fun songs and laugh-out-loud moments well worth checking out. It recently started playing on Netflix. Now for an even more funny slapstick movie for kids that adults can laugh at, too. This puny little child thinks he can be a villain. I am pretty despicable. That was clip from the trailer for Minions, The Rise of Gru. This is the fifth in a series of movies featuring the Minions. It's the fourth directed by animator Kyle Balda. The script is by Brian Lynch and Matthew Fogel. For the uninitiated, the Minions are short, yellow, simple, loyal creatures who speak a gibberish of words randomly put together based on several languages. They are unquestionably loyal to Gru, the supervillain. Gru is again voiced by Steve Carell, doing his best to sound like a 10-year-old version of Gru. This is an origin story. It's set in 1976, and the whole story, along with the movie score, with songs like Funky Town, Cecilia, You're No Good, and Born to Be Alive, has a nostalgic vibe that also goes for our main villains, the Vicious Six. Early in the movie, they overthrow their leader and the brains of the outfit, while Knuckles, Alan Arkin, leading the rebellion is Bell Bottom, Taruji Hansen, followed by Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Nunchuck, Lucy Lawless, Vengeance, Dolph Lundgren, and Stronghold, Danny Trejo. With the overthrow of Knuckles, the group auditions for a new member, and a ten-year-old Gru applies. 
They kick him out when they see he's just a kid, but a quick-thinking Gru makes his move to impress them, but ends up in their clutches. Gru has stolen a mystic gem that he quickly passed on to a clueless minion. Several minions seek to find the stolen object that one of them has foolishly traded away for a pet rock and get Gru to safety. There's a fine cameo here by Julie Andrews playing against type as Gru's mean mom. There's also a fun bit part for Michelle Yeoh as Master Chow. Oh, and there's an inspired bit with the minions on a commercial jet pretending to be a flight attendant, a pilot, and co-pilot, only part of which was used for the movie trailer. The trailer was so funny I watched it several times. The whole scene is even funnier. All in all, a fun movie worth watching. If you like the other Minions movies, you'll enjoy this one as well. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters were Kelsey Krogan and Christopher Cartwright. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Leak for his technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. I, uh, Nate Wuggiehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nate Wuggiehout. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.